0: And so as you come to this, uh, he's not here today, but uh, I want to thank John Moody for preaching uh, a very straightforward sermon on Hebrews 12, 1 and 2 about running the race. And we will start reading in verse 1 all the way down to verse 11. So if you're able to stand this morning, would you stand with me in honor of God's word? And let's read together Hebrews 12, 1 through 11, greater than suffering the Lord's discipline, a topic perhaps that we don't talk about enough or we don't consider enough, but the writer of Hebrews is going to put it before us today as we look at what it means to know the Lord under his hand of discipline, not always for wrong reasons, simply for growth it may be. But hear the word again, verse 1, starting down to verse 11. God's word says, therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, For in your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood. And verse 5, have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. For it is for discipline, verse 7, that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have an earthly father who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more subject to the father of our spirits and live? For they, verse 10, disciplined us for a short time, as it seemed best to them. But he, that is God, disciplines us for our good, that we may share his holiness." For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. This morning, again, I want to touch on a topic that not many people talk about because it's a hard topic to talk about, and it addresses a lot of questions that we may have. We may not solve them all today. We won't, in fact. But I pray this sheds some more light about what is happening in your life, perhaps right now, as you may feel, as it were, the heavy hand of the Lord upon you. And what that means for you. It's not always a sin issue, though it can be, but most oftentimes it's just simply God growing you up. Just like a parent grows up a child in the way they bring them up as they grow in their young years. Will you pray with me? Let's go before the Lord one more time and we'll begin. Father, we thank you that you don't leave us as we are. You may take us just as we are, as we often sing, but Lord, you don't. Call us to stay there, because if we have a new relationship with you, we have a new relationship with sin, and that is to fight it, to eradicate it, and do our best not to be tempted by it, all by your grace, through your strength, and by your spirit. So, Father, today, as we look at this topic of of the Lord's discipline, would you give us wisdom and grace? Would you help us to do it for your glory? And, Father, on a day where the world is is just, uh, once again, going about the ways not which you have called them to, but the opposite— Would you help us, by your grace, to walk the straight and narrow, not to be legalistic, not to be pharisaical, but to share, as he said, in your holiness. We pray these things today in Jesus' name, and God's people said, amen. Hebrews chapter 12. I'm going to move my sign here for a second, excuse me. Well, as we come to this time, there is something to be said about the book of Hebrews, because what we are getting into now is the sermon. Did you know he hasn't been preaching a sermon to you the whole time? this is the sermon. This is the exhortations. Chapters 12 and chapters 13 are now what you can call the exhortations. But there are several things that he doesn't tell you, and there are several things as a pastor I would love to tell you. I just want to share this with you for a minute. There are several things I'd love to be able to tell you, but I cannot. And the, the author of Hebrews is not either about this topic. For instance, I would love for you to know that Everything in your life, all the pain, all the suffering, all the worry, all the financial hardships, I'd love to tell you that if you would just trust God a little bit more, it would all go away. I'd love to tell you that Christianity is a pain-free frolic down some yellow brick road with, with a dog yapping, saying, we're not in Kansas anymore. But my commitment to the Bible won't allow me to do that. I'd also love to tell you that things such as Scripture says that, that, that we need not be concerned about friends that don't know Jesus, that, that hell is not real. I'd love to tell you those things are not true, but I can't because my commitment to Scripture tells me that those things are true. I'd love to tell you that Satan doesn't exist, that everything that you're being tempted with is just a figment of your imagination and that, that, that it's just all hocus pocus. But because of my commitment to the scriptures, I cannot do that. Psalm 119.71 says it this way, and you'll see it on the screen. It says that it was good for me to be afflicted so that I might learn your decrees. It was good for me to be afflicted so I might learn your decrees. And if you're like many people, it really doesn't surprise me that people continue to ask, if God loves me, why does this happen to me? If, if, if I'm serving him, then why do all these bad things continue to happen? And you may be a bit confused, wondering why an all-powerful, all-loving God doesn't seem to care about your pain, your problems, and your trials, and your tribulations. But this is something that the scripture does say in many ways, shapes, and forms that I will share with you. Because the reason is, is sometimes love hurts. The reason sometimes love hurts is because when we love someone, they may fail to love us back. And I'm talking about God's love because sometimes, because God loves you, you will hurt. That may be physically. That may be your pocketbook. That may be your ego. But I've repeatedly affirmed to you from this pulpit and from many times that we have indescribable joy in Jesus. And as we celebrate the Lord's Supper in a few minutes, we are not. it's not a funeral dirge. It is a celebration. Yes, it's serious, but it is not a dirge. But sometimes the primary thing we have to remember is that God puts us in situations that make us weep, that make us hurt, that make us perplexed as to precisely what he's doing. But because God loves us sometimes, it hurts. And no, I'm not talking about taking a piece of cake away from you at the Super Bowl party tonight. The primary task of a pastor, it's been often said, is to help people prepare to suffer and die well. And friends, today I pray in the book of Hebrews, we do that well. So this morning, some questions I want you to know. How will you and I respond to suffering in the scriptures? How do we do that? And what will its effect be in our lives? So the big idea today is simply this, is that suffering precedes glory. If it was true of Jesus, it's also true of all those who follow Jesus. What these verses we've just read remind us is of are that Jesus will bring teaching, reproof, correction, discipline, all sorts of things in your life to make you more like him. So you can share in his holiness. So you're fit for heaven. So you're ready to run the great race. And at times, God's hand of discipline seems light, but at times, it feels like the weight of the world by God's providence is on your shoulders, and there's nothing you can do. You're not like Atlas, the great uh, uh, Greek mythology guy you see holding up the world. Only God can do that. It feels like you're under the weight of it. Yet it's all for one purpose, to bring you in greater conformity to the will of God and the image of his son. Eat your heart out, Joel Osteen. This is what the Bible says. In Hebrews 4, I want you to see four things the Lord disciplines will do in your life. And as we get there, Pastor John, my former Pastor John, who preached here, now member John here, preached last week. And he reminded us that Hebrews 12, 1 and 2 is a picture uh, that you might even say of like a stadium, of people, the Old Testament saints of Hebrews 11, looking down upon these people, running their race. Now, they're not in heaven. We don't believe there are saints in heaven that can look down through the corridor of time and see uh, people down here. That's why we don't pray to saints. That's why we don't pray to Mary, because only Jesus is the mediator. There's one God and one mediator between God, and that is the man, Christ Jesus. But we're not racing against one another. We're not racing against our own expectations. We're running the race God has set before us. And the fact is, I run my race better when I see you running your race well. I run my race worse when I see you not trying to run your faith race well. It's an individual pursuit, yet it's done within the confines of the body of Christ. And that's why it's so important that we realize this today. The writer of Hebrews is giving you a sermon and a sermon and a sermon. Isn't that great? You didn't know that, did you? You got more sermons coming at you than you know. But he's going to tell you that to run that race well, God has to bring discipline in your life. It will look different for you than it will for me, than perhaps this church against the next church. Go read the book of Revelation. All of the churches that Jesus sought after, they didn't all have the same problems. They had different things. But the point of it was, is that Jesus will be glorified above all things in our lives, no matter the cost. And that is what he is after. So this morning, I want you to see these things. These Christians, as you know, are under heavy persecution. He's writing to They're growing weak. They're slowing down. They're beginning to think it's not worth it. But as we look around at this world, as we look around at other Christians, may we be reminded that we are not in this alone, that we are here to walk and work with the Lord Jesus Christ. But I'm here to tell you, suffering precedes glory. If you ever find a preacher that tells you that you will not suffer, or if you you are suffering, that you don't have enough faith in God, run away as fast as you heard his voice or her voice. Eat your heart out. Joyce Meyer, Creflo Dollar, T.D. Jakes, Christine Kane. Can I run the list? Do I need to run the list? Because if you were to take them to this passage here today, they would call heresy before they called faithful preaching. If you're a Christian, you are going to suffer. I'm going to suffer. But the bottom line is, God is behind it all for his good, our good, and his glory. We look at verse 3. I want you to first see the calculation that it takes. The calculation that it takes. Verse 3 tells us that, consider him. You see in verse 2 that he told us to fix our eyes on Jesus or looking to Jesus. Now he says, consider him. Consider Jesus who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so he may not grow weary or faint-hearted. What is he saying here? He says, as you fix your eyes, as you look at something, now consider it. Focal pointed in. This word consider literally means something not casual. It's not just like, oh, think about Jesus when you want to, but consider him. Put him always before you. And it's the word we get here. It's a a compound word that we get the word a logarithms for. This makes Pastor Nelson all happy inside because it's computer code, and that's what he did as a young man, zeros and ones. But it also means to be so precise that it's a careful calculation. It's like a CPA would going and taking a calculation of all your taxes and putting it together so you have the right numbers to submit to the government. You are to consider Jesus as precisely as somebody who accounts for everything in their life. What does this mean for you? It means you can't just have a vague love of Jesus. There has to be a specific love of Christ in your life. There has to be something specific in your life where you have a focus on Christ. Because so many times we just think, love Jesus. Don't you hate when preachers say that? Love Jesus. Well, what does that mean? Love Jesus. That's pretty vague, isn't it? But what he tells them here is to consider him. Do the math. Calculate it. Analyze it. Scrutinize the Lord Jesus even. We can't have a shallow, superficial knowledge of Jesus. We must know him. Spend time with him, study him, be familiar with his deity, his eternality, his humanity, all these things. We need to understand his mission. We need to understand why he came, why he didn't come, what his death means, what his resurrection means, what his ascension means, what his coming again means. Because the bottom line is a superficial understanding of Jesus will not do anything good for a champion runner who wants to win the race. And what is the race? It's not a race for a crown, it's a race that shows once and for all you are in the kingdom of God. Because as you finish the race, that is evidence that God is the one who helped you get to the end of the race. So what he's saying is simply this, you need to consider him. Consider who? The one who endured. See, it's easy to start a race, isn't it? But it's much harder to finish. I've been in many marathons, literally, in my life where I've wanted to throw in the towel. And then something my, my own stubborn pride says you can limp your way to the finish, uh, Pastor. Get in there and get it done. Pastor Nelson has seen me literally limp across Old Two Ten Highway in South Liberty to a finish line and uh, pass out and I'm almost in front of my car. It's easy to start a race. It's one thing to finish. And he says, consider him. Consider who? Who's he speaking of here? Speaking of Christ, didn't he? He endured everything. Such hostility. What hostility did Jesus have? Oh, let's think about this for a second. Remember that Christmas story that we talk about? From Jesus' very birth, what did they have on the back of his, his body? A target. He was targeted from day one. The very day that he was born, his parents left the country, or sometime after that, left the country because all the boys were being killed. And then when he was inaugurated publicly, he was ridiculed at his baptism. He came out of the wilderness after being tested for 40 days. He goes to Nazareth and unravels a scroll and says, in your eyes, this prophecy's being fulfilled. And all the people jeered at him. Some tried to throw him over a cliff. Others tried to trap him in his words. And eventually they said those great words, at least in the world's eyes, great words, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. So from the very beginning, everything he did faced opposition. If you are going to go deeper in your knowledge for Christ, you will face opposition even within your own ranks. But I want to remind you that Jesus stayed the course. He didn't alter. He didn't flinch when the pain came. When the Father brought forth his plan and his life, he stayed the course. He calculated the cost. So as an average Joe church member, what does this mean for you? You can fantasize about another job, You can fantasize about another spouse. You can fantasize about another church. But in God's providence and plan, there may be a time and a place to move different places. But I want you to know this. You need to calculate the cost of what it means to be a follower of Jesus in a place where you routinely go through the same things over and over and over and over and over over again. Pastors get into this all the time. Boy, the church here is terrible. I just need to find another church. I've said it before, I'll say it again. The grass is not greener on the other side because the cows still go to the bathroom there too. As it comes to your faith, you need to calculate the cost of what it's going to be. Have you considered him? Are you suffering in your faith? Stay the course. Calculate it out. William Carey, the great Baptist missionary of years long ago, spent over 40 years in India, 40 years, and he never even saw a convert to come to Christianity until seven years into his ministry. Seven years. What would it take for you to be faithful to a people, a place, or an organization to stay the course? I want you to know that we are so susceptible to lose our focus of what is important in this life. Friend, it's not always about hopping around. It's always about sometimes staying put and being where you need to be. Calculate the cost, even if it comes at a high cost to you. But there's also a comparison, number two. There's also a comparison. I want you to see verse four. He says, in your struggle against sin, you've not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood. Now, that seems kind of rude if you think about it for a second. He's basically saying to you, you haven't died for your faith yet, so put a plug in it. You haven't died for your faith yet like these other people over here. So just stop your whining. Stop your complaining. Go have your pity party over there. Go do it, uh, whatever. Stop it. What's he referring to? He says you have in your struggle against sin. What is that struggle? You've not shed blood. That's referring to Hebrews 9.22 where it was said in a few chapters ago, without the shedding of blood, there is no what church? Forgiveness or remission of sin. It's a reference that God in the Lamb of God would take away the sins of the world. In perspective, he's saying, no matter how difficult it may be for you, nothing can compare to what Jesus faced. And we know that. That's the ultimate example. He just played that ultimate trump card, right? When you lay down the name of Jesus, I mean, who can argue that? But his whole point is this. We don't say this indifferently. We don't say this with pastoral, without pastoral compassion. But the fact is, none of us here today have had to die on a cross for our discipline before the Lord. We don't have to bear the sins of the world. We don't have to do any of that. The reality is, compared to the martyrs of the faith, those who've died for the faith, we have it pretty easy, especially here in America, don't we? We get upset if someone cross looks at us for going to church the wrong way. What he's saying is, we need a reality check. You need to compare your race with Jesus' race, and you have not yet have to die for your faith, so don't worry about it. Keep focus. fix your eyes, consider the cost, calculate it out, but now compare to where you are. So this means you strive against sin. You flee temptation. You resist temptation. You put on the helmet of salvation, the armor of God. You wield the sword of the Spirit. You take up the shield of faith, and you do all these things for his glory. That's what he's saying. It's kind of like a coach. I had to put a football reference in, forgive me. But it's kind of like a coach coming before a player and giving him a bit of a talk on the back of the shoulder pads because he knows he can do better and say, come on, son, get with it. Get going. We're playing football here. Christian, you're going to get hit in this life. You're going to get tackled for your faith. Whether that is spiritually or physically, you will suffer. You're running a race that God has set before you. So how do you handle this? What are some super practical ways you can hold on to your faith when the going gets tough? Well, if you're looking at your notes, you got 13 staring you right in the eyes. You ready for these? Number one, be saturated with Scripture. Be saturated with Scripture. It's a silly illustration. I'm going to pick at him for a minute, but I've learned that our pastor Brian is a ketchup aficionado. There is nothing that man does not put ketchup on. He saturates everything he has. I don't know if he's hearing me or not, and he'll tell me later. I've I've been at many lunches with him, no matter what the dish or the or whatever. That ketchup bottle comes out, and he just all over that. I love Brian for that, friend. In a spiritual way, in a much seri- more serious way. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. He is the mighty creator of all things. Saturate yourself from Genesis to Revelation. That's the primary starting point of how you're going to stay focused in considering the calculated cost of Christ. Second is study biblical doctrine. I don't want this to scare any of you, but I would encourage you to write this book down. It's very accessible to you. You could probably get it on $5 online. The seminary didn't have a copy. A couple of the guys I asked you didn't have a copy. But there is a book by R.C. Sproul called Everyone is a Theologian. Everyone is a Theologian. What does that mean? Theology is just a study of God, what you believe about God. But I want you to know the more you study God and what we really believe, the more shored up you will be when those hard times come. When people tell you your God must not be real or he wouldn't have done that in your life, you can say, but my God is faithful even when I'm faithless. You study biblical doctrine. Number three, you pray for this type of focus. You pray for this kind of focus That is, you pray that God will keep your eyes fixed on the Lord Jesus Christ. You pray that for your family, pray that for yourself, you pray it for the church. Please, please, please pray that for us as pastors. We need that every day to not get in the weeds of things that are not where we should be focusing. Got those down, number four. Memorize key verses about Christ. Memorize key verses about Christ. Say, where do I start? Start in the book of John. Go through and find what Jesus said. Some of you have a red-letter Bible. I know some don't like those because it seems to elevate the words of Christ or the other words of Scripture. It's another topic for another time. But find the words of Christ. Memorize them. Let them saturate your soul. Let them be a balm to you. And then number five, meditate. Meditate upon Christ throughout the day. Take those memory verses, the things you're studying, and think about him throughout the day. You know, some of you are really good. If you have a spouse or kids, you may text them through the day and say, hey, I'm thinking of you, I, I love you, I care for you, or, or or for some of our relationships at times, don't forget this, or hey, you forgot that, you know, uh, the checklist kind of stuff. But throughout your busy day, meditate on Christ. Church, if every one of us would commit even a couple more minutes a day to who Jesus is, our lives would be much much more joyous, would be much more peaceful, and would be much more harmonious about what Christ did for us. Number six, how do you calculate the cost and compare yourself? Be fervent in your fellowship. Be fervent in your fellowship. Guess what? Tonight in Glendale, Arizona, there's going to be about 75,000 people who paid more than my monthly mortgage times like the whole year to sit down to be fervent, quote-unquote, in quote-unquote fellowship with other people. You don't have to pay a dime to get to know anybody here. Well, you might take them to lunch every now and then. That's nice, but. At the end of the day, the guarding of each other is the guarding of your own soul and your own race before Jesus Christ. Don't be an island here at Tower View Baptist Church. Get to know people. If you're visiting with us, we're so glad you're here. We want to be a relationship-focused church. At times, that looks different for different people. But our focus is to get to know each other because it guards our heart and mind in Christ. It ignites our heart. When I see you running the race, it helps me run my race. Number seven. And some of you do this often anyway, but think much about heaven. Think much about heaven, not pearly gates, not what the Southern gospel songs often sing about, but think about heaven, the one who is in heaven, the one who is high and lifted up around which the angels sing, holy, holy, holy day and night without ceasing, where Jesus is seated in the heavenlies. He's the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. How do you fix your eyes on Jesus? You think about where he's at and where you're going to be. And number eight, it goes right with us. Think much about his return. Think much about his return. Not in a, I put this in my notes. I'm going there. And I, I said, go for it if you want to. So here it is. Don't become a disciple of the end times to the exclusion of every other doctrine about what the Bible says. Don't become an end times nut so much that you forget what Jesus did for you on the cross. Don't become an end times nut where everything that moves in the news must be the return of Jesus and you pin the tail on the Antichrist. You know the dates and the times and the names and the locations of everything and if someone doesn't agree with you, they must not be Christian like you. Stop it. Think much about his return. What do we know? He's coming back, isn't he? He's coming glory. He's coming visibly, personally, powerfully. He's coming with almighty armies of heaven. Think much about his return. Number nine. Number nine. How do you stay focused on Christ? You come to the Lord's table. But Darren, we're Baptist. We don't believe there's like any effectual grit. We're not Presbyterians. We're definitely not Catholics. So what does it mean, come to the Lord's table? Well, first off, it's a command of scripture. We're to remember the death and burial and resurrection of our Savior, but also his return. Today, we celebrate the Lord's table. Ben has changed my language. I, we used to call it the Lord's Supper. He's, he's gotten me in the mindset of calling it the Lord's table. Same thing. Come, remember, eat and drink together with what the Lord has done for us. And number 10, can you just take a mental break and ponder the accomplishments of the cross of what Jesus Christ did for you? Understand these words. Willie, I believe it was you who said years ago that you wanted your grandkid, his first word, to be the word propitiation. Most adults can't even say that word, let alone little kids. But you need to understand that on that cross, Jesus propitiated himself, that he absorbed and took upon all the wrath of God, that he redeemed you, that he reconciled you. You need to understand what Jesus did on the cross and what he did not do. Number 11, you need to remember his humiliation. What do we mean by that? Well, the writer of Hebrews in verse 4 is telling you, you haven't yet given away your blood as he did. But you need to remember that no one ever started so high and ended up so low as our Lord Jesus Christ. And nobody ever elevated from so low became so high as our Lord Jesus Christ. Number 12, because you do all these things, how do you stay focused? How do you stay focused on the things of Christ? One of the most practical things we forget about is witnessing for Jesus Christ. Some of you thought this red thing was for chiefs. No, sorry. After church, members, we've asked you to write down names of people. I wrote one on there, and he won't be listening to this. I'm praying for one of my running friends, Scott, to come to know Jesus. Who's your one? Who's one person in your life that needs to know Jesus? We asked you last week, if you were here or able to be here, that you might take one of these door hangers we're hanging out now, handing out now that can share the gospel with them. But after church, I would, there's, a, there's a marker we'll put in the back to write the first name, just the first name of the person you want to come to know Christ. This isn't a magic formula. There's no guarantee here, but we will pray fervently together and make that list because part of the way you stay focused on Christ is telling other people about Jesus. Do you know why churches often die? Because they get so inwardly focused, they're not outwardly focused anymore. They forget that God has sent them to be witnesses to the world. And so what do they do when they start to hang around each other too long? Did you hear what happened to Pastor Nelson? He's an alien from another planet. And he would actually take that at face value because he loves space and time. (laughs) If you want to stay focused on your witnessing with Jesus Christ and your faith with Jesus Christ, tell others about him. That's number 13. Share your testimony about Christ, your testimony about Christ. Number 13, give your testimony. Share it. Tell others what God has done for you. Look, you may never, verse four, have given up your life for Christ, but you have to stay focused like Christ was focused on the life he came to live. And these are all the things he did and more. I'm trying to be very practical with you. Maybe you're doing all these things and it doesn't mean that you have to check everything off every day, but would you pray about this week in this list of 13? Lord, what is one way that I can stay focused this week? Would you teach me through one of these, Lord? What is it? If you have trouble with that, Nelson, myself, catch up, love, and Brian will help you, whatever. Come find us. That is the comparison. There is the calculation. Finally, I want you to see, or third, rather, the counsel. He tells them to, to calculate the cost. Consider Jesus. He then says to consider that they've not yet shed their blood, but now he wants to tell them why he's telling them this. You ready? Look back at verse 5. He says, My son, do not regard lightly to the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. You notice here in in, in verse 5, I didn't read the first part, and have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? The you here is a you referring to all believers in Christ. He's telling them that you've basically become so distracted with all these other things in the Christian life that your trouble has taken over your perspective. That trouble has become it. You know, when you get a blister on your foot, doesn't everything in life just shut down for, a, for like a, a week? Or you get a pain, and, and, and you, you type Dr. Google. Thank you, Linda Heast. Uh, Linda Heast and I joke about it. So Dr. Google, we go to him sometimes. And he tells us to do this and that. And until that pain's gone, we just can't move forward with life. You understand what I'm saying? And when some of you, you've told me, I believe, you hit a certain age, or so many pains, you can't Google it enough because you just can't stop, you, whatever. But he says, you become so distracted, stay on point. They're being cut off from their families, they're being arrested, they're being thrown into the arena, and he calls them sons. All Christians or true believers are sons or daughters, ladies of God. And he tells them, do not think this some small thing. This has always been what God has done for his people. It's as if he is saying that this is what the Lord has called you to, to suffer for him, to discipline you, not because of anything bad you've done, but to grow you up in his name. That's why he says, my son, don't regard it lightly. Some people would regard it lightly. Lord, this isn't any big deal. Lord, what are you doing to me? You're, you're more concerned about the pain than you are about what God is trying to teach you. You're more concerned about how to get out of it than to work and see God work through it. Does that make sense? He's telling them that God is causing all things to work for you, so you will not faint. Because what happens often when you focus so much on a problem? You get overwhelmed, you get worried, you faint over, and the discipline is so painful and so discouraging that you become exasperated, and you just want to throw your hands up. But he tells them in verse 5 that he does this to reprove you, to reprove you to bring conviction and correction in your life. And friends, notice what verse 6 says. Please note this. Please note that this is not going to be found on any TBN, Trinity Broadcasting Network. It's not going to be found on any of the popular Facebook videos you have floating around that if you share this 10 times, God's going to bless your socks off. Verse 6 says, Those whom the Lord loves, he gives Mercedes-Benz. Those whom the Lord loves, he gives them health, wealth, and prosperity to their their heart's desire. No. Those whom he loves, what does it say, church? He disciplines. He has a special love for you, so he calls you out to grow up in Christ. We should be more concerned. This will be up on the screen. We should be more perplexed by God's blessings than by his discipline on us. The fact that we expect God just to give us blessings just simply because we're His children is foreign to Scripture. Does God bless us, friends? He absolutely does. In Jesus, we have all the blessings more so than we could ever need. But you also need to know that God is not a heavenly slot machine or a heavenly bellhop that at our beck and call, like Aladdin's genie in a bottle, That he just poofs out and says, what can I do for you today? He says that pruning is the evidence of our union with him. See John 15. And that the evidence that we know him is that he is making us more like him. And there is no exceptions to this. He scourges. Notice the end of verse 6. What does your Bible say there? You may have a different word. He says, verse 6, the Lord chastises or scourges or receives Literally, it means the Lord in the Greek gets a whip. I ought to bust your view of God a bit. Mine too. That God literally inflicts severe pain and not a little slap on the behind. For what reason? So that you can be more like him. James 1, 2, and 3. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Hebrews 12, God is filling gaps in your spiritual life and maturing you by growing you sovereignly, purposefully, and providentially so you can grow taller, higher, and have a wider and deeper influence for the gospel of Jesus Christ. I don't have time to chase it, but if you want to look more of this up, go read Psalm 32 tonight. Write down Psalm 32. Psalm 51. We need a strict coach to counsel us like the Lord, to push us beyond our jogging and shuffling. You know, as a runner, what happens, uh, you've heard in in modern vernacular, marathon is 26.2 miles. And most people will get to about mile 18 to 20, and they'll start to hit the wall. They call it the wall. Really what it is, is your body has only so much glycogen. Uh, I'm looking at Amy. We just had this chat right before. This is medical science, Amy. I'm trying here. And your body runs out of glycogen because you didn't store, you didn't eat anything. You didn't store enough calories and it doesn't burn fat well. And you just black out almost. You hit a wall. And then when you take some energy, guess what happens? You can go forward again. But it's almost like God is pushing us beyond our walls, our comfortable walls here. And reminding us to keep our stride and to keep pushing forward, even if it hurts. Lord, I don't know what you're doing in my life. Lord, I don't like that. Father, take it away. God, I prayed three times, Paul said. And God said, My grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in your what? Weakness. Why does God bring discipline? Oftentimes, it's just simply to make you taller and stronger in your faith in Jesus Christ. And that church, that goes for us too here. Right now, big picture of our church, things are firing on all cylinders in a lot of ways. We've got some things always to shore up. Welcome to church life. But things have probably never been smoother in these last 10 years I've been here than now in a lot of ways. We could kick up our feet and say, easy sailing. But I want you to know, God could pull off the rug of anything underneath that if we're not trusting him. And even if he does, it's for our good isn't it always lastly is this he gives the commentary he's going to tell you why all this happens last few points here look at verse 7 he explains why this is hard why this is a hard saying he tells you i get it i know you're feeling the pressure i know it's hard i get it. i don't i know you don't like this hebrew christians but you got to know why god's doing it so here's six reasons why first verse 7 says it is produce endurance in your life to produce endurance in your life, verse seven. And this comes right out of the scripture. It's, it is for discipline that you have to endure. It is for discipline. Why is God putting these hard times in your life? Why is God bringing about sovereign arrangement of these things? It's because every one of us needs to build up our endurance in the Christian life. Some of you who played sports years ago, or, or if you played piano, Meg, I thought of you this week. Other people have a discipline where it just takes a lot of practice. It's hard because you just want to give up. Because it gets really hard, and, and you know if you break through that barrier, you're going to go forward in whatever pursuit of hobby you're doing. But by golly, it's hard, and it's hard. And you look around, and your friends quit, and, and, and your buddy who said, I'll do that with you, quit like two months ago, and here you are doing whatever you're doing. You need endurance. Christian, you need to look around at other Christians when you're struggling in your faith. This is why being at church is so important, not just have butts and seats so that you can identify with each other and say, hey, I'm going through this too. Would you pray for me as I pray for you? Look, I know that the Lord has disciplined me because of wrong decisions and attitudes in my life as he has yours, and I need that correction. But there are times when everything is going well and the Lord has greater plans for me, and it's not because of anything in my life. He wants me to be a runner who's not sprinting and then walking, sprinting and then walking, sprinting and then walking. He wants me to keep the pace because I need endurance. For what reason? Look at the end of verse seven. He tells you it's only for endurance, but it also proves sonship. It also proves daughtership, if you will, proves whether you're a Christian. Verse seven, for what son is there whom the father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, verse eight, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children, and not sons or daughters. Look, God deals with you as sons. He doesn't deal with the kids next door. You ever wonder, why, like, God, why don't you deal with that wicked person? Their days coming, Christian, but often he needs to focus on you. For what is son with whom the father does not discipline? That's a rhetorical question with an obvious answer. In today's age, most fathers are not there. Did you know that? You look around most families today, fathers are absent in two thirds of regular families. Most families are single moms, grandparents, or adopted parents taking care of kids today. That's a whole other problem, isn't it? But he says here that every father, every parent, every caretaker disciplines their child. For what purpose? Because without discipline, if the Lord is not reproving you, if he's not correcting you, if he's not bringing you to a place to grow in your faith, and he's not pushing you, then you've not become a partaker. You are illegitimate children. Literally, you have not become a partaker. Can I put it in very simple language? If the Lord does not discipline you in your faith, you are an unsaved person. You're religious but lost. You confess Christ, but you don't possess Christ. Your name is on the church roll, but it's not in the Lamb's book of life. You are in the stadium, but you're not in the race. If you are a Christian, the discipline of the Lord is a stamp of approval that you know the Lord. It is as if, as one preacher has well said, that God puts you on a leash and you may go out in your sin or out in your way for a while, but after a while, he will rein you back in, just like a dog on a leash. Every true son or daughter goes through this. It's what the old Puritans called, you can be an almost Christian, but not a Christian. Scary place to be. Why does God do this? It's sonship, it's endurance, but number three, it instills respect. It instills respect. We're getting there. I know you're holding on. Verse 9, first part of verse 9, it says it instills respect. He says, besides this, we had earthly fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them. Why do you praise God? You praise God because he didn't leave you just as you were. You know, many places talk about love, 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 and they forget that every son whom he loves he disciplines and puts the fear of god in our respect and our awe for god would be low if god did not bring us to love him through discipline number 4 in verse 9 it creates submission it creates submission he says shall we not also much more be subject to the father of our spirits and live as the lord brings his discipline on our lives we realize that we are the we are the clay And he is the potter. And he is molding us and shaping us in the fashion that he wants. That phrase there you may have in your Bible, Father of Spirits, could literally be translated Father of Our Spirits. It refers to the Heavenly Father who lives in a different realm. And he wants us to live as God intended us to live in Christ. Number five, it not only creates submission, but it also produces holiness. Why does God do this in your life? He does it, number five, because it produces holiness holiness. For they, verse 10, disciplined us for a short time, speaking of earthly fathers, as it seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good that we may share in his holiness. What this means is they, our, our earthly parents disciplined us for a short time. And maybe you had a parent who disciplined you very hard. Maybe they misread situations, or they were heavy-handed, or there are there times when they pulled back and were too soft on you. But our Heavenly Father does it perfectly. He brings in all that He does, all things well. And and, and everything that flows out from Him, the rod that He brings to us is to produce more in us of Him. Church, can I just say it this way? I wish there was another way. I'm a human too. I wish there was another way. But the Lord may have to take you to the woodshed many times to get you on the straight and narrow path. Do you know what I mean? And if He's taking you back to the woodshed and straightened you out, Every time you should come out of there praising God, saying, thank you, Lord. I'm not the man or the woman or the child or whatever I used to be. You've made me more like you. We wish it could be that way. We, you know, it's like when I stand in the pulpit and preach, and sometimes my wife can give me that look, and I know exactly what she means, and she gives me that smile and says, settle down, settle down. And I know what that means. I wish it could be that way with God. I wish he could just give us a look. But that's not how it is. God often brings to bear instruments in our lives that are painful, and it's going to hurt. But the point of it is, verse eleven. Here's the takeaway. We'll close with this, verse eleven. It develops righteousness. It develops righteousness. Here's the promise. Here's the uh, carrot at the end of the dog chasing around the track. Here's the trophy for the runner. Here's the here's the uh, <laughs> here's the donut on your cheat week when you've been holding back calories. Right, verse eleven. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than good, uh, excuse me, painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields a peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who've been trained by it. That word train there, my boys are going to jump up because we're in that stage of life. That word train there literally means they trained without clothes on. The emperor had no clothes. There were no restrictions. Runners today have skin-tight spandex that just accentuate all the wrong things right but back then when you trained you trained without clothes on why the word there literally means to train naked for the reason that there would be no encumbrances as they would run in the gym as they would go on the bars as they would lift weights it was to train to firm up your muscles so that you had nothing holding you back from being the athlete you could be so god says he trains us in righteousness so we can be the christians we are called to be Close with a story. There's a story about two farmers who live side by side, and they both had sons, five sons. One farmer got his five sons out in the field about 9.30 every morning, and they went home about 4 o'clock, called it a day. They'd go in the house. They'd watch television. That's one farmer. The other farmer with his five sons were up before the crack of dawn. They were out in the field by 6.30 or 6.00. Whenever the sun was, they were always a half an hour early. And when the sun went down, they were always there a half an hour after, and he was pushing them and working them seemingly harder than the other farmer, and certainly harder than the farmer who was next door. So that first farmer with the five sons, the 9.30, the four, the banker hour guy, who was rather easy on his sons, said to the farmer who really pushed his boys, he said, why are you so demanding on your boys? And the other farmer, who knew they both were producing about the same amount of crops, the second farmer said to the first, said, sir, I'm not raising crops. I'm raising boys. Christian God is raising men and women, and he's pushing on us, and he's bringing us storms and difficulties, but I want to tell you, whatever God is producing in you right now is going to yield a fruit of righteousness in your life that you will look back for and say, thank you, God, for taking me through that. I hated it. I didn't like it, but now I can serve you all the more, and more so, I'm more like you all the more, Lord. May it always be. Suffering precedes glory, church. Will you pray with me as we close today? Father, thank you so much. As we get ready to sing our last song and partake of the Lord's Supper together, we are reminded, Lord, so much of how you work in our lives. These are not the sermons that get the most likes on Facebook or views on YouTube because they bring us to a great reality, Lord, that we don't like to face. That, Lord, it was good for us to be afflicted, Psalm 119, 71, so we might learn your decrees. And it is for discipline and righteousness and conformity and proving our salvation and knowing you more that you bring about these hard times. Father, this doesn't mean that you don't sympathize with us. We thank you, Lord, that that, that you always understand us. We thank you. The great message of Hebrews is we don't have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but in every way was tempted and tested as we are, yet was without sin. We thank you, Lord, that you understand. You get it. You really do get it, Lord. But at the same time, help us to get it. That when hard times come in our lives, whatever that may look like, whether that's public or private, Corporate as a church or individual. That your grace abounds. And where we are weak, you are strong. Where we are faithless, you are faithful. Where we don't want to continue on, you continue to to press us on. For Father, it is a race to heaven. And the first one there doesn't win the prize. But the ones who finish the race by your grace show that it was your grace all the time that carried us every step of the way. So Father, help us as we sing pass me not, my gentle Savior. Lord, may we remember that you pass us not even in our hardest and darkest times. Thank you for your grace. May you be with each individual situation here, which are too many to parse out from the pulpit. May your grace give us wisdom as we live out for you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. He still loves you. He's still ready to forgive. And he will hear this humble cry that this song talks about. So just begin as you sing. Begin to examine your heart. Confess sin before the Lord. And then trust in the forgiveness and merit of Jesus.